0: Lowlight. Written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley. Episode 2. Big Owl has a perfect perch for a pry and a cock of the ear towards the huddle of shocked gossip that is bubbling below tree number 33. She blinks, Only Gavin raises his eyes toward her and inclines his head slightly in greeting. He emerged onto his front step when he got Shirley's message, hoping to catch her, and instead witnessed the fuss as neighbours further down the road ran to the scene of Padma's death. Having walked quietly down the road and stopped at the wall of number 17, he gazes up at the owl, barely visible beyond the glare of the streetlight for a beat or two. She ruffles her feathers as a blanket of cloud darkens the sky, and Gavin snaps back to the activity taking place in his street. Lewis is in tears in Padma's front garden, explaining to the detective that Padma has no immediate family, while Sergeant Hussein shoulders past the small crowd, with her roll of crime scene tape, moving everyone back. She's like a bird herself, although something less aloof than owl. She's a parcel of delicate bones, is Ruby Hussain, and she almost escapes notice as she lightly moves around, marking out the new stage. Task complete, she stands, awaiting the next Look down, then. Owl's eye view. Focus. Can you see it? You can, can't you? Just. An impression on the ground. The beginnings of a track. Bottom step of Padners, Round the side, through the shrubbery, up the side of the back garden and out onto the central area of community-mindedness. Keeping to the perimeter avoiding the notice of the odd numbers along Hawthorne until it dives through the bushes in between number 25 and the back of the theatre bar. It has been dampened somewhat by Detective Connolly's boots now at Padma's End. If I could ask you all to please keep calm, Sergeant Hussein will be speaking to as many of you as possible this evening. There will be a team knocking on doors in the coming days to take statements, the detective says. Ruby pulls her notepad out in readiness, and her first customer makes herself known. Sally steps up. Gavin watches her closely. He can feel the owl's eyes on his neck, and there's a very definite shuffle in that bat box. Sally Thurgood, says Sally. Hand outstretched as if she's meeting her bank manager Ruby has to move her notepad to her other hand to take the proffered paw and grimaces a response before remembering that she's not actually required to make physical contact with anyone. A flick of a smile as she recovers thorough I'm at number thirteen two doors up and I saw the person that did this to poor Padma well. No, that's not right. I didn't witness the stabbing. That would be untrue, so you mustn't write that. Was she stabbed? Padma? What did she use? Was it a knife or... She? Pardon? You said she. Sorry, Miss Sally. Miss Sally, sorry. You said... Sorry, let me... Um. So you live at number 13, okay. You said she, referring to the person who stabbed. Actually, we don't know the cause of uh, the injury yet. Is she alive? What? N- no. I mean, we have to inform the next of kin and we have to wait for the doctor to pronounce time of death before we tell the public. Sorry. So she is dead then, Sally whispers. We need to establish what happened to Miss Vishwakama. I think you can probably help us with that, Miss... I- Sally, you said you saw someone. Tell me exactly what you saw the girl from Eric's, over the back. There's an old man that lives in the big house there and he's always taking in waifs and strays of one sort or another. And currently there's a girl, I don't know her name. She's staying there, has been for a week or so, I think, and it was her I saw. Here, she waggles her hand over the wall, in Padma's front garden. She looked straight at me. Then she ran. What time was this? Eight o'clock. My programme finishes at eight and I had stood up to straighten the curtains. A little sound from the crowd. Could be a tiny bit derisive, but we'll come back to that. Ruby's eyes flick to the culprit and back to her notepad. You were in your house at that time. Yes, right by the window. That sound again. A bit like suppressed sniggering. Ruby looks up now, bold, not having any of it. Bird-like she might be, in stature and movement, but it would seem she has a little steel in that heart. Right then, back to it. It was dark by eight o'clock. Are you absolutely sure it was this girl? I'm in no doubt whatsoever, says Sally, with a little lift of her chin. Can you tell me what she was doing? Well, She wasn't really doing anything at that exact moment. OK, where was she exactly when you first saw her? Next to the front step, where Padma was. Then she saw me, took a fright and ran off down the street. Like a whippet she was, small but fast. Did you see Miss Vishwakarma too? Did you see the two of them have any interaction? No, not an interaction. Ruby waits. I didn't see Padma at that point, no, but her door was open. The light was on in the hall. Gavin glances at the open door. The light's not on now. The light hasn't been on since he arrived, he realises. All right, Miss Thorogood, if you can tell me the address where this girl lives, please, we'll leave it there and I'll be back in touch if we want to speak to you again. That's very helpful. Owl rotates her stately head around towards Lightwood Hall. She has a direct line of sight into the lantern on top of Eric's house, the room in which he stands now. She stretches her wings, settles, checks on Gavin again. Some things are worth the winging, she supposes, so she quits tree number 33 silently dropping herself down from the branch, just to give Gavin something to think about. He ducks and twinges his back, before lifting herself up and over the terrace of red bricks and their long, narrow back gardens, entering Eric's airspace just in time to see Shirley below, heaving that damp bag around the side of the house, before she lands on the old hall's roof and level with Deirdre the cat. Eric is there, phone dropped. Eric, whose face is wet, and whose chest is heaving, and whose grip is tight on the windowsill, as he strains to see the impression of the dark track in the land as it writes its name between Lightwood Hall and Number 15 Hawthorne Road in the suburb of Lower Lee. There's a beat, then, as Eric thinks that a moment ago he didn't know the truth, and he preferred that, thinking his friend was alive and well and working her magic as usual at the end of that dark track. A blast of voice. The plate glass jumps in its rotten frames as Eric lets out a wail. The next-door theatre has never managed to produce anything like it in any of its productions, even when old Conrad was still appearing in the annual murder mystery. The sound is raw emotion, of course, and it seems to emanate from an ancient place, a place of pure, natural humanity. Deirdre's instincts compel her off the back of the chair and onto the windowsill. Only a thin sheet of glass between her and the owl now. All they need is a pea-green boat for a very satisfying image but Eric is in no mood to oblige with the relevant incantation. The owl blinks, disappointed. Deirdre seems relieved. Sounds of concern thump along the corridor inside the house, and Eric's door wafts open to admit her now unhooded head. Eric, what's the matter? says the girl. I, oh, no, no, oh, says Eric at length. She comes over. What's happened? Deirdre jumps to the side table. He half turns and his legs give way, so he's caught by the young arms as he tries to explain. My friend, he says. She's gone. Padma? Yes. Where? And now his face creases. No, she, she, it was... Oh, oh, oh. she was killed. Killed? Hurt with, I don't, blood spilled. There's blood on the track. Our blood is out. It's out. This is the end. What do you mean, our blood? Eric makes a desperate sound. I, uh shh, it's all right. No, it's not, no, it's really, really not. You don't know. It's come all of a sudden, but it is the end now. Eric, come on, quieten, let me help you. The girl struggles to support Eric's crumpled bulk and glances down to the phone screen and sees the word bubbles still coming in, thick and fast. I don't... who can have done it? Eric, it could be a mistake, or an accident. I I can go and find out. I'll run over and see if... No! Loud exclamation from Eric there. Even Deirdre is shocked to silence. The owl is rapt. Okay, Eric, don't upset yourself more. I'm sorry, I won't go. I'll stay here with you. Eric, tell me what you mean. It's the end of what? Is Padma? was she, like you? He looks at her like he's a child caught in a lie. She was, wasn't she? I knew it. I went to see her. You? I didn't. I couldn't in the end. But you have to stay hidden. You can't be seen any more. I shouldn't have allowed you to. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He looks at her with a tenderness that makes Deirdre jealous. Eric's frown is drawing itself deeper, and he's getting overwrought. Collar's too tight. Oh, dear. Padma, what will I do? Oh, I can't think. I, I need. We need. Eric. Eric, listen, I'm here. I'll stay in with you and we'll be okay. And you don't need to do anything except try and breathe. Calm yourself. And then there's a knock. A big resounding knock from the front door. This house does knocks well. They boom up the stairs, no equivocation. That poor old door, though. It does suffer. They stop. And Eric's old roomy eyes scream fear as he thinks who it might be. Eric, comes the voice, faintly in the night air. Shirley, he whispers, and his face relaxes as he drops into the chair. The girl understands and runs out and down to admit the help, the saviour, the sensible, solid, no-nonsense kindness that is, Shirley Banks. Gavin is still leaning on the wall at number 17, watching events unfold. Through the little vista of gardens beyond the crime scene, the icy stillness of Tanya seems to call his attention as she stands looking on from Rowan Drive. He notices the self-satisfied smugness of Lance nearby too. Lance the Lollerer, Gavin thinks. He always seems slightly grimy, and yet gets about as if he's dressed in Armani. Gavin can't stand him, and I mean he can't stand him. No, ma'am. Interestingly, Lance is sauntering along the cul de sac to Tanya, an unlikely pairing, although Gavin supposes that times like these, Unhappy episodes and things out of the ordinary can throw people together in their desire to make sense of things. He watches from under his eyebrows. The way Lance approaches her, as if he's in a cheap spy movie. The knob. Gavin regards Lance with distaste as he nonchalantly turns away from Tanya, even though he's just walked to within two feet of her, and starts to pretend not to speak. Gavin frowns. Last week, him and Shirley were returning from the theatre down the back ginnel, and they saw a man loitering at the far end of the ginnel, where Lance's back garden gate is sited. The man heard them coming, and suddenly took off down the ginnel to the main road. It was Lance, there's no doubt, despite it being dark, He has a very distinctive gait. Gavin and Shirley stopped, both sensing something afoot, frowning in the foggy night. Why didn't he just let on, or even go inside his garden? Why did he run away from them, and away from his own house? A few seconds later, a light that had been on in the disused church over the fence was switched off. They'd spent the next couple of hours drinking Shirley's leftover Christmas wine and eating cheese toasties and coming up with increasingly far-fetched theories about Lance running some kind of dodgy fake sports goods operation or contraband enterprise. Now, Gavin drifts down the road, past the gathering neighbours, scanning the tree for the owl's perch. Only the bats are there now marking his progress. On he innocently goes, could be on his way to Shirley's for all anyone knows. Where is Shirley? He slows when he's within earshot of what sounds like conversation of a decidedly shady nature. Yes, indeed. Under the canopy of the big red beech's still bare branches, there are now three parties in the chat zone at this end of the cul-de-sac. Gavin indulges his imagination for a moment. One agent, one handler, one what? Superhero. Stool pigeon? In one sense. Could be, actually. So Gavin quickly diverts his attention to... to what? To his shoe. Yes, that shoelace needs tying a bit tighter. Needs must. They won't search the grounds says Lance, it's a risk we can't take. Tanya seems to push words into the world without moving her lips. Not tonight. The filth will be there in about ten minutes, thanks to Sally, he presses confidently. You'd better hurry then. Pure ice. Lance is momentarily dumbstruck, and then, after a moment, he frowns with, it's not my end, is it? My end is the product. Yours is the... yours is the other. Tanya breathes in, holds it, and out again. Your end is what I say your end is. Or do you want me to speak to the operator? He snaps his head round, eyes wide. He laughs, a little bark of a thing. You can't do that. As if, can't I? Look, all right, let's not fight can see you're not dressed for it, so yeah, I'll help you out this time. But I didn't sign up for this kind of caper, given my sciatica. Don't look at me like that. Chop, chop, Lance. The detective looks like he's making a move. Lance could crush walnuts with the set of his lips, but he breaks the scene and lopes off up Hawthorne and round the long way to Lightwood Hall. Tanya stands with a silence that could freeze a breathing pig, and stares over at the scene outside Padma's house. Detective Connolly notices her and stares back, breaks the stare to glance after Lance as he passes him under a street lamp. Gavin cranes his neck to watch, still bent to his shoe. Foot trouble, Gavin. Gavin flaps up and twinges his back. Ah! Bad business, this, isn't it? You think Sally's got it right. Oh, I don't know. Uh, We'll have to see what the police say, won't we? Eric will be upset, won't he? Will you and Shirley go over there? Is that where you were uh, headed now? To knock for Shirley? Yes, uh, excuse me, I was. It's so sweet to have a neighbourhood romance. What? Don't be coy, Gavin. I know you two are together. We are not together, as you put it. It's not really your business, Tanya. Gavin gathers himself. What were you and Lance? Tanya shows her astonishment at Gavin's double standards through the medium of raised eyebrows, and to give him credit, Gavin does look a little sheepish. But it doesn't matter, because at that moment. Mrs. Lawton-Jones, isn't it? Detective Connolly cuts across Gavin. We met at the business awards before Christmas. You gave me your card. He walks towards them and Tanya moves off to meet him. Gavin stands awkwardly. Detective, yes, I remember. This is an awful business. Can I help in any way? We'll be contacting you for a statement in due course. You didn't see anything this evening, I take it? Oh, no. I heard what Sally says she saw, but I wouldn't set too much store by it. The girl who lives at Eric's is harmless. Learning difficulties, I think, but not malicious. I don't think she's a murderer. Well, we'll find out. Tanya. Tanya. We'll find out. We'll be in touch and if, in the meantime, you think of anything that might help us with our inquiries, please do contact me. He hands over a business card of his own. Tanya allows a small quirk of her lips as she turns to stare back at Gavin. Gavin takes an involuntary step back and trips up the curb, just saves himself. When he looks up again, Tanya is walking smartly up the road, towards number 41. Well, well, well. There's a dark flitter swoosh nearby. Gavin dips awkwardly, remembering the owl's earlier shenanigans, and twinges his back again. He limps off, with one eye on the bats, down the cul-de-sac to number 11 Rowan. No answer. And all is dark. He phones Shirley. No answer. Hangs up and calls again. Nope. He tries again and finally yes. Shirl where? Yes, sorry. But where are you? Are you? Okay, well, do you want me to come over? The police are on their way round there. No, they want to question the girl. Sally, yeah. Is Eric okay? Oh, okay. I could bring a warmer for him. Food? Yeah. Okay then. Hey, look, I know this is going to sound mad, but I think Lance might be on his way round there too. Yeah, I just overheard a conversation with him and Tanya, of all people. It sounds like They're in business together or something. And they were talking about the police maybe searching the grounds and what Sally told them. Yeah, exactly. It was really weird, Cheryl. Well, yeah, no, I can't stop thinking about last week either, but I'm not sure about... We agreed we should assume it's horses, not zebras, didn't we? I know sometimes it will be ze... Look... It's probably nothing. Just some local business thing. Yes. No, that's true. I don't know what business needs Lance to wander around Eric's garden either. You have a point. OK, OK, sorry. Yep. go on. What? What? Eric's house has three doors. The long-suffering front door that we've already met is quiet as the murmur of Shirley talking to Gavin on her mobile phone at the top of the stairs proceeds. Around the back of Lightwood Hall is the second portal, a relic of the garden party age. Boarded-up French doors stand between the drawing room and the terrace. The third and final door is probably the most serviceable. It stands quietly at the side, a utilitarian plastic thing with a solid lock. This is Deirdre's door, cat flap of the most modern design being mounted there. Lance has arrived at Eric's property. He does not knock at the first door, nor does he try his look round the back. The side door is also ignored. It doesn't look like he's planning to try to get the property owner's attention at all, in fact. Instead, Lance pulls his hat down, puts his dark gloves on, and steps through the wrought iron gate, which always stands open, fixed in place by saplings, into the tangle of twigs, branches and last year's weeds. He stops a few metres inside the gate, where the street light doesn't reach, and waits patiently for his eyes to adjust. And here comes the moon to help him. He fetches up that disconcerting smile again, and advances forward. Second step and he's in the fox shit. Not ideal. But, looking down to assess the extent of the mess, he notices that the vegetation around him is decidedly ragged. The ground is churned, twigs broken, leaves dragged. He follows the damaged trail, his feet slipping and then recovering, Then he sees the wet and the trampled bank of the pond. Bending down, he teases a scrap of plasticky paper from a rhododendron. It's a muddy twenty-pound note. His breathing ceases. He can hear a kettle coming to the boil. His heart hammers. Shit. On the top floor landing... Shirley takes a deep breath herself. I said, Reg found some money in Eric's pond. A big bag of it. No, I've hidden it in the shed. I No, Reg ran off and... Gavin, let me speak. Blue lights begin to flash about the neighbourhood. I'm not doing anything with it until I've spoken to Eric and I can't do that at the moment because he's in a state and the police are about to knock on the door. No, Gavin, just stop talking and get over here with that brandy. I've got to go. Shirley tucks her phone away and peeps out of the tall hall window, blue lights approaching. She goes back into to Eric, who is silent in his chair, staring out at the rooftops. The owl looks on. Deirdre is grumbling. Shirley drops down in front of Eric. It's a very artistic scene, could have been painted by one of those French or Spanish Academy artists. A woman kneeling before an old man. Eric's eyes close, and Shirley can see his muscles relax a little as she takes his hand. She searches his face for, what, a clue as to what she can say to a man whose best friend has just been murdered. The girl is downstairs making tea. Shirley listens for her, expecting stairs to creak any minute. There's no creak. There is a faint shout, though. Reg hears it, too. From the garden. It was once an impressive garden. Nothing else. Shirley and Reg look at each other for a second. And then the door opens and admits the girl. There's someone in the garden again, she says. Shirley gives Reg the nod and he's off down the stairs. Gives the girl a reassuring smile. Eric, are you listening to me? mm Gavin's coming over. I hope that's all right. I thought you'd like to see him. The police are on their way too. She looks up. I think they'll want to talk to you, she says to the girl. Me? Why? Helpful Sally's been constructing theories, I think. Who? You'll have to go, says Eric, weakly. Don't worry, Eric. Don't worry. Uh, I don't know your name. L. L. Don't worry. She's probably talking rubbish. It'll just be routine. Go now, love. Go on. Go and stay hidden. It's not safe here anymore. I'll be all right with Shirley. The girl hesitates for a moment, and then she leaves. Eric, it'll be fine, don't... Eric silences her with his eyes. She says, quietly, Why does she have to go, Eric? You can't be on your own tonight. She has to go. Shirley stops, gives this some thought. Horses or zebras? Right. Okay, well, I mean, you can come to mine tonight or... No, I can stay here. Gavin and me and Reg will all stay here. Reg sets up barking at the side door then, eliciting a double grumble from Deirdre here and no mistake. Yes, all right. Make sure I don't run away too. A tiny smile from Eric. I need to pee. Yes, well, I hope you won't run away, Eric. He drops his eyes, but stays quiet. Okay, you do that, Eric. There's your tea for when you come back. Just settle yourself in here. I'll just nip down and let Reg out in case he needs to go too. So, the three humans diverge, each to their immediate task. Shirley descends the stairs as the girl emerges from one of the reception rooms as was, with a rucksack over her shoulder and a small package in her hand. The two women face each other in the hall. Reg whines by the side door. Why do you need to stay hidden? Why do you have to leave here? Nosey, aren't you? Yes, generally I am. Do you have somewhere to go? I'll be fine. She turns to go, but stops. Shirley wonders how old she is. She seems to look younger than she did upstairs. L waves her phone with a question. They exchange numbers. A knock at the front door. I have to go. Look after Eric. The girl mouths and is off. Silently, as it happens. Only been here a few weeks and she knows the route around the various creeks like a professional. She bypasses the front door in the shadows and leaves via the side entrance, letting Reg out on her way. Shirley stops in the front hall and listens. She can hear Reg noisily detecting his target. Ow! Get off me, you leave off! He's found him. Good lad. Reg, she calls limply over her shoulder. Leave it, Reg, and opens the front door. The owl shifts her feet. She looks down to see Lance being pursued by a determined Reg who seems to have hold of one of his gloves. He issues forth onto the pavement again via the garden gate just as the detective and his sergeant disappear through the front door. Lucky. Runs off down the road, leaving Reg with the glove, triumphant. He checks he's lost his pursuer whips his hat off, shoves his hands in his pockets and composes himself as best he can as he slows to his trademark lope, down Alder towards the church. Reg stands, wags, does that sneeze-slash-headshake thing dogs sometimes do and looks after him, pleased. The moon is back again after a brief absence, From up there, we can see the whole neighbourhood. The crowd on Hawthorne continues to swell and shift with a need for comfort and company. Mick calls to Tanya before she disappears around the bend in the long road, beckons Brandon and some others over. They gather together and head towards the pub for drink and talk. Only Gavin keeps walking away up the road and Lewis stays with Padma until the police reassure him there's nothing more he can do. Deirdre, who has put her owl grudge to one side, faced with a knight being wagged at by Reg, climbs onto the windowsill to peer down into the darkness. Let's see what she's so interested in. Yes, there's L waiting for a quiet moment. She waits just inside the garden fence and then slips across the road where she stops and turns, looks up, then she pulls her hood over her eyes and leaves. Charity is still by her high window. She watches the street, thinks she's sorry, says it even, but no one hears her. She watches L recede into the distance. Owl jumps as Deirdre paws a spider on the window right by her head. She squawks as she rises and catches an updraft. Up above the trees, higher into the sky, and she looks down too to locate the track, the favoured hunting ground for occasional exotic beasts unused to northern hunters. She begins to taste supper, but a glint from across the way, pulls her over to the ginnel. She swoops over as Lance wanders along the passageway. Looks like he might want to access his house unseen by the general neighbourhood. One wonders why that might be. Plagued by dive-bombing Bird and his phone suddenly shouting out its jolly tune, he jerks, losing his keys. He freezes, as a back gate cracks open. Cat. Cat's been sitting in the garden, in the low light cast by neighbours' windows and reflected from the gathering cloud cover, waiting for Shirley to come home. She's been trying to get Shirley to answer the phone. She knocked earlier, went round the back to peer down the ginnel to see if she could catch her, but she was too late. So she's done a lap of the block and is now sitting in the back garden on Henry's old swing. Utterly dejected, cold, alone, shocked by the earlier violence and her failure to prevent it. She closes the gate, couldn't see anything, leans back against it, allows her loneliness to grab at her heart, feels the pain. And then, when she hears a gate further down bolt, lances perhaps she turns and goes out into the ginnel again herself this time she's going back to Eric she'll walk through the low light to do something she thought she'd never have need to do again you have been listening to low light written performed and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicedudio.com.